Our sermon this morning is uh, from Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. So turn to Mark 1 in your Bibles if you have them. You can follow along on the screen or in your your bulletin as well. Uh, If you're using a pew Bible, then you can find Mark chapter 1 on page 785. So turn there. And just three short, three short verses, verses 9 through 11 on the baptism of, of Jesus. Like we said last week, um, our sermon series for the Advent this year is a little atypical because it's all grown men. There's no babies and mangers. Um, but it's still helpful and still relevant because it has to do with, with Christ's arrival, Jesus's, um, you know, arrival onto the scene, preparing for his public ministry, and that's kind of what Advent is all about. It's about Jesus's arrival, uh, and it's about our preparing our hearts for um, both the the day when we celebrate Jesus's first arrival and our preparing our hearts for Jesus's eventual second arrival. So we spend a few weeks saying we're going we're gonna to wait and long for and anticipate and prepare our hearts for Christmas to remember Jesus's first advent, and our entire lives as Christians is one big long process of waiting and longing for and anticipating uh, Jesus's second arrival when he comes back to defeat his enemies once and for all and to save his his people once and and for all. So Mark one maybe not the most typical advent uh, you know passage, but still still relevant for for advent. Last week we looked at the life and ministry of John the Baptist. And so we kind of saw that he was almost a second version of Elijah, kind of showed up with, uh, you know, scraggly animal uh, fur and a leather belt around his waist. He was uh, had a ministry similar to Elijah's. He was calling people to repentance. He was speaking truth to power. He was putting his own life at risk. He was telling people that they needed to repent and turn from their sin so that God would forgive them of their, of their sin. And, and this week, in the midst of that ministry, in the midst of John proclaiming that baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, Jesus approaches him and, and uh, asks to be baptized, which is a little bit enigmatic when we think about uh, what John's baptism was for and who Jesus was. But we'll, uh, we'll get into that, and we'll kind of think together about why Jesus got baptized We'll think together about what the significance is of Jesus' baptism and, and kind of why it, why it matters and why it's relevant for us as, as believers today. So uh, let's read Mark 1, 9 through 11, and then let's pray together and let's, let's, uh, let's get into it. <clears throat> it says, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth uh, of Galilee, and he was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he had come up out of the water... Immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven saying, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you that you sent your Son into the world to rescue us and to save us from our sin and to secure our salvation so that we can be reconciled to you. Lord, we pray this morning that you would speak to us. We pray that your Holy Spirit would uh, empower us and, and help us to listen to your word together 
consider your word together, meditate on your word together. Lord, we pray that you would give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear. Give us hearts that are humble so that we might receive your word and respond well to it. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Okay. Verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. Um, Nazareth is a small town. Galilee, so, uh, Galilee is a region of Israel, northern Israel, uh, kind of around the Sea of Galilee. And so uh, the, the, the Christmas story that we traditionally hear takes place, mo- much of it in Bethlehem, which is in southern Israel, in Judea, near Jerusalem. It's almost like a suburb, or as it were, of, of Jerusalem is Bethlehem. And so uh, the, the Christmas story has uh, Mary and Joseph traveling from Nazareth, where Joseph is from, south down to Bethlehem where Jesus was born. Uh, the story in Matthew shows them kind of uh, fleeing to Egypt to escape persecution, but eventually making their way back to Nazareth in uh, northern Israel in the area of, of Galilee. Now, here's why it's important from a historical and uh, perspective that Jesus came from Nazareth. And here's why it's important that Mark mentions that Jesus came from, from Nazareth. Um, because it gives us, it gives us reason, uh, all, all the more reason to believe that the gospel is, is true, that the gospel of Mark is true. The, the town of Nazareth was, it was remarkably unremarkable, if that, if that makes sense. There was nothing, nobody knew about Nazareth, nobody cared about Nazareth. Nazareth was some random town in a, in a, it was flyover country. It was a random town, not very influential, not very, it was not, not, you know, uh, highly trafficked or visited. Uh, Nazareth is mentioned all of zero times in the Old Testament. That's how prominent of a town that it was in the, the country of, of Israel. And here's why that matters, because there are, some criteria that historians use to assess the credibility and the likelihood of being true of, of ancient texts like these. Um, and so, so well, it's going to run through a few of them, right? The, the, there's a criterion of what's called multiple attestation, which means if a historical event has multiple different uh, you know, sources that all refer to it and all speak about it, then the fact that they corroborate each other kind of gives us reason to believe that maybe that event actually happened, that those sources are all true. It's got multiple. And so the Gospels fit that criteria. There are four different Gospels, many of which tell uh, the same story about a lot of uh, events throughout Jesus's life. So you have multiple attestation. There's another criterion called the, the criterion of dissimilarity or discontinuity getting a little, a little bit into the weeds of kind of what historians think about and kind of talk about, but dissimilarity or discontinuity means if you take the prevalent kind of, um, you know, the mainstream prevailing thought at the time, if you find a source that says exactly that, that agrees with exactly what everyone says and says exactly what you think someone would maybe say if they were to have made it up, then it's maybe, that that means it's possible that that source is made up. But if something is dissimilar or if there is a discontinuity between the mainstream prevailing thought and what this source says, then that means it's more likely that that source is true because chances are that that person would not have, have made, it, made it up that, that way. 
So uh, multiple attestation, the doctrine of, or the criterion of dissimilarity. Another one which is similar to dissimilarity is called the criterion of embarrassment, which means that if a source includes a detail in it that is embarrassing, that is not convenient for that person, uh, th- then chances are that that uh, detail is true. Chances are he didn't make up a detail that was embarrassing for him or for the person he's writing about. And chances are, if he was willing to include that detail, then chances are he's pretty committed to writing a truthful account of whatever it is that he is. Right? If you if you if you read someone's memoir and it says, "I was a you know smartest kid to ever grow up in my hometown," and you know I was recruited by NASA to be an astronaut, and I you know, all the girls liked me. I was always dating the prettiest girl in school and the Yankees wanted me to be a starting pitcher out of high school, right? Like, you'd read that and you're like, but, right, or if you read another memoir that says I was kind of goofy, kind of awkward, you know, average, maybe below average intelligence and competence, you know, if you read those two memoirs side by side, you're like, chances are, if I had to pick one of these to be more aligned with the truth and one of these to be more exaggerated, I'm going to pick the one that was embarrassing that is more truthful the one that is super convenient to be more likely to be to be made up well when jesus when mark says that jesus came from nazareth that is that's not a detail that you would make up that's a detail that you the only reason that mark would write that jesus came from nazareth is if jesus really did come from if mark were making up where jesus came from he would probably say that he came from Jerusalem, which was the religious and cultural epicenter within the nation of Israel. Or he might say that he came from, you know, outside of his, he might have came from Rome, kind of the capital city of the Roman Empire, which effectively means it's the capital of the whole world at that, at that time. But he definitely wouldn't say that Jesus came from... He, this, this, is, this kind of helps you wrap your mind around Nazareth's reputation. In John chapter 1, when one of Jesus' disciples mentions to another one that this is Jesus of Nazareth, the other guy says, Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth? Right? Like, n- implying, no, of course there can't. Nothing good, nothing important. Nazareth is uh, no one of value, no one of prominence is ever going to come from Nazareth. So when Mark says... Jesus came from Nazareth, chances are he really did. And chances are Mark is committed to writing the truth about Jesus because if he wasn't, he would have either omitted or changed that, that detail. So Jesus came from Here's another uh, detail in, this, in verse 9 that fits that same doctrine or criterion of embarrassment, which is that Jesus was baptized by John. Uh, religious teachers... In the first, like you, be, the the one that was of su- of superior religious and theological, you know, status was the one doing the baptizing, right? You get the, the inferior of the person doing the baptizing, the person being baptized. The baptizer is superior. The baptized e is inferior, and so uh, it would have been. I mean, if you if you read this uh, in the first century, you kind of would have rolled your eyes a little bit and thought. Dude, I thought this whole gospel was supposed to be about why Jesus is so great. So why are you going to, in the opening verses of your letter, include a story where at least Jesus is, he's not even the most important person in his own gospel about him. 
John the Baptist is obviously more important, more superior, more prominent than Jesus because he's the one who is baptizing Jesus. That's not a convenient uh, detail to leave in. That would be uh, uh, evidence of a discontinuity or a dissimilarity between, right, if Mark can say Jesus is the Son of God and he was baptized by John, then he's, that's a pretty significant break from the prevailing thought in that day. So, so verse 9 is quite a, quite a piece of evidence for, for, for thinking and believing that the gospel is true, the gospel of Mark can be trusted, Mark really wrote what really happened, and that these re- things really did happen to, to Jesus. So, Jesus comes from Nazareth, he comes to John the Baptist in the, the Jordan River, and he gets baptized. Which again, kind of raises the question of why did Jesus get baptized? If John the Baptist, we saw in verses, I think, 5 and 6, we saw that Jesus is, or that John was preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, then why did Jesus, I mean, Jesus, John's, John's baptism meant, you're a sinner, you've sinned against God, you need to turn from your sin. You need to look to God, ask Him for mercy, and hope that He will save you. First Peter 2 tells us that Jesus committed no sin, and no deceit was found in His mouth. Hebrews 4. We have a high priest, that's Jesus, who can sympathize with our weaknesses because He was tempted just as we are, yet He did not sin. First John 3. Jesus appeared so that He might take away our sins, and in Him was no sin. 2 Corinthians 5, God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. John's baptism was for sinners. Jesus need not apply. Jesus was not a sinner, and therefore he did not need the baptism that John was offering. So why did Jesus get baptized? In Matthew, John effectively asks that question of him, right? Jesus comes to John, and John says what you would exp- right, what you exactly would expect him to say. He says, uh, I shouldn't be baptizing you, Jesus. You should be baptizing me. You're the superior, more prominent uh, teacher and, and leader here. Why don't you baptize me instead of me baptizing you? And Jesus says, no, I want you to baptize me. Uh, let it be so, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. So Jesus says, the reason I want you to baptize me, it's not because I'm a sinner. It's not because I need to repent, like your baptism... Uh, implies for the most part, but rather it's to fulfill all righteousness. Now, scholars, theologians have kind of a laundry list of uh, different reasons kind of under that umbrella of fulfilling all righteousness. Specifically, what does it mean? And specifically, why did Jesus get baptized? Any number of reasons, right? Jesus's baptism kind of serves as uh, an endorsement of John's ministry, right? So remember last week we said that John's ministry looked a lot like Elijah's ministry. And it was almost like there were parallels being set up linguistically for the writers to to remind the readers of Mark's gospel of Elijah's ministry, almost to say, John the Baptist is like Elijah. He's a new version of Elijah. And uh, Jesus, his ministry looks a lot like Elisha's ministry. And so when John, it, when, when Jesus uh, it goes to John and asks him to baptize him, he is linking those two together and saying, just as Elijah and Elisha were linked together, forerunner, successor, so too John the Baptist and Jesus' ministries are linked together, and I'm going to 
formally, publicly align myself and identify myself. John's not just some crazy guy in the woods, right? John is somewhat, he's with me. He is the Elijah to my Elisha, right? So, so Jesus uh, invites John to baptize him to, to give a formal public endorsement of John the Baptist's ministry. Another is not, not that Jesus was a sinner, needed to repent of sin, needed forgiveness for sin, but simply to identify with sinners. Jesus, uh, Jesus' entire ministry is marked by him drawing near to sinners, uh, being close to sinners, being around and among. The, the incarnation that we celebrate during Advent at Christmas is all about Jesus coming into the world, coming among sinners, drawing near to them, identifying with them. And so his being baptized is a way of Jesus identifying with sinners who do need John's baptism. They do need to repent like John is calling them to, to do. Uh, next, it would be just to, to set an example, right? Uh, Jesus calls his people to be baptized. Part of, part of how you uh, commit to the church and enter into the people of God is by being baptized and making a formal profession uh, of faith. And so Jesus sets an example of what it looks like to be baptized by he himself being baptized, right? Jesus, when Jesus calls his people to be baptized, when Jesus calls the church to baptize people and teach them everything that, they have, that I have commanded... He's not calling anyone to ever do anything that he himself has not already done before. He set an example uh, of, of baptism for us. So, endorse John's ministry, identify with sinners, set an example. Another is um, Jesus' baptism was, was symbolic of his coming death and resurrection. Jesus is baptized not because he's a sinner and needs to repent, but he's baptized because he wants to kind of give a subtle nod, a subtle foreshadowing to what would eventually happen at the end of his life, which is that he would be killed, he would be buried in the ground, and he would be raised up from the dead. And that, that kind of uh, act of baptism by immersion, you see that kind of burial and resurrection symbolism kind of baked into it that Paul points to in Romans 6. He says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ, we were baptized into his death. We were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So Jesus' baptism is, you know, for those who have eyes to see, those who have ears to hear, it's him kind of wink, wink, nudge, nudge, saying uh, three years from now, after I've completed my public ministry, I'm going to be killed, I'm going to be buried, and I'm going to be raised. I'm going to be buried in the waters of baptism and raised up in, in new life at the onset of my ministry, and I'm going to be buried in a grave and raised up to eternal life uh, at the end of my public ministry. Endorse John the Baptist, identify with sinners, set an example for his people, foreshadow his death and resurrection. Another one, we'll dive into this one a little bit more uh, when we get to what Jesus is saying, or what, what the Father is saying in verse 11, but um, for here it's worth mentioning Jesus was baptized to establish himself, set himself up as the, the new Israel, the true and better Israel, right? God brings Israel out of slavery in Egypt. He brings them through the Red Sea and then into the wilderness on their way to the promised land. The nation of Israel, uh, under the leadership of Moses, was effectively baptized, as it were, in the Red Sea. Just before they spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness, Jesus is baptized in the Jordan River just before he spends 40 days uh, in the wilderness being tempted by, by Satan. And so that parallel is done on, on purpose. God is saying, 
I called Israel to a specific task. I gave Abraham a task in Genesis 12. I gave Moses a task in leading the people uh, out from, from Egypt. I gave Israel a job in the, on the, the world's stage, on the stage of human history, world history. I gave is, right, Israel's job was to be the recipient of my covenant blessings and promises right? To receive my word, to receive my promises, to receive my grace, and then to channel it out and to broadcast it out. We're going to dive into uh, Genesis 12 in, in just a few minutes. But, but Israel's job is to receive God's grace, receive God's covenantal blessings, and then channel them out. Uh, you know, all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you, right? And so that's Israel's role. And when Jesus is baptized and kind of setting himself up as the new Israel, he's saying, I am taking onto my shoulders all of everything that Israel was called to do, I'm going to do it, right? Israel was called to be uh, the, the channel, the venue through which the blessings of God would extend to all the world. And Jesus is saying, I'm him. I am the, I am the seed of Abraham that is going to broadcast the blessings of God to go outside of the borders, outside of the boundaries of Israel, and to go all the way to the ends of the earth, to go to all, to every nation and tongue and, and tribe. I am the new, all of the promises that God made to Israel are kept in me, and all of the promises that, all of the, the mission that God had for Israel, the promises that God made to the world through Israel are going to be accomplished through me. Jesus was baptized to establish himself and solidify himself as the new, as the new Israel. <clears throat> so, we've got all these reasons why Jesus was baptized, and then we're in verse 10 and following, we're going to actually see the baptism and see what happens. Verse 10, and he came up out of the water, he immediately saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a, a dove. Jesus is immersed uh, in water, he comes up out of it. The heavens tear open. The Holy Spirit comes down in the form this this uh, you know form of a dove. This is where we get like if you look at a lot of art throughout Christian history, the Holy Spirit is often depicted as a dove. Um, and so th- this verse is where that uh, imagery kind of comes from that the Holy Spirit has this dove-like essence to him. Um, he's probably drawing a little bit from some Old Testament. Uh, imagery as well. I mean, the spirit in Genesis 1, when it says God created the heavens and the earth and the spirit of God hovered over the waters, that word for hovered literally means like flapping its wings almost. And so, um, so there, there's, there, there's almost a, a bird-like, dove-like essence to the Holy Spirit right at the, at the outset of, of the book of Genesis. Um, after the flood of Noah, um, as the flood waters are receding and Noah is on the ark with all of the animals and he sends out a dove to go see if the waters have receded and the dove brings back a, fle- a freshly plucked olive branch. And so the dove is kind of symbolic of new life, new genesis, recreation. We're going to start over. The dove kind of carries all of that symbolism with him. And so the Holy Spirit has a similar kind of regeneration, new life, anointing of the Holy Spirit, giving you a new life, a new chance, a new beginning, a new start. All of that is kind of bound up in the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the imagery of a dove that we see uh, in the first six, seven, eight, nine chapters of the the Bible. So the Holy Spirit descends uh, in the form of a dove. 
And then a voice comes from heaven saying, You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. So we have all three members of the Trinity here together, interacting together, participating together. Spirit is anointing Jesus. The Father is affirming Jesus. Jesus is looking up to the Father. He's being uh, you know, anointed by the, by the Spirit. The, the, doctrine of the, like, the doctrine of the Trinity is um, mentioned all throughout Scripture. This is probably one of the most explicit and, and um, clearest pictures of the three members of the Trinity interacting together and kind of being together. The doctrine of the Trinity is, is mentioned or, or alluded to tons of places. Jesus prays to the Father. He prays by the Spirit. He casts out demons by the Spirit. John 14 through 16, Jesus is discussing the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the helper that's going to come later and is going to convict you of sin, these kinds of things. Uh, Jesus prays to the Father in John 17 and, and following. So, so the Father and the Son and the Spirit um, are constantly mentioned or they're, they're looking to one another, interacting with one Ephesians chapter 1, you can kind of see the ministries of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit one after the other, after the, the other the Father plans and arranges and preordains how salvation is going to be accomplished. The Son by the shedding of his blood accomplishes the salvation that the Father uh, appointed and intended and then the Holy Spirit seals and applies uh, and, and actually, you know, calls draws people to faith uh, so that the, the effective death of the Son that was foreordained by the Father can all kind of uh, take place and kind of be, be locked in, right? So we see the, the Trinity mentioned a lot. We see the three, I mean, the, the Great Commission, right? Go therefore into all the, the world, uh, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe and com- obey all that I have, have commanded you. So uh, the Trinity is mentioned a lot. Um, but this passage in particular shows us them interacting together at the same time. There's, a, uh, th- there's a, an ancient heresy from the early church called modalism, which taught that instead of, uh, instead of God being one God, completely unified in his essence, but being three persons who are entirely distinct from one another in their personhood, that's the doctrine of the Trinity. Modalism rejects that. Modalism says God is one God who exists not in three different persons, but in three different modes or three different versions of himself uh, at you know, any one at any given time. In fact, um, so when I was a kid, you, maybe we've all probably heard something, but like heard the, the Trinity explained to me as like, uh, like, the, like water. Water can be uh, water or ice or vapor. So that's, so that's not, a, the, not the best way to illustrate the Trinity to a child because that's actually a heresy called modalism. Because uh, like water can exist, it, it's, either, it's one of those three, but it's not all three at the same time. The Father is the Father at the same time that the Son is the Son, at the same time that the Spirit is the Spirit, and they're all God at the same time, but they're all distinct from one another at the same time. And so uh, this passage right here is going to show very clearly that, that God doesn't present himself as, you know, one particular mode or manifestation or version of himself at any given time, but rather he is three persons that are all fully God, but are all fully distinct from one another. There, there, are, there are denominations today that fall outside of the bounds of orthodoxy uh, that teach kind of a modern version of modalism, 
One's called uh, oneness Pentecostalism that, that teaches this kind, this kind of, of thing. But the reality is, and what we see here in Mark 1, is that God is, God is one God. All the persons of the Trinity are fully God. Neither of them are more God than the other. But all three persons of the Trinity are fully distinct from one another. So Jesus is God. The Spirit is God. The Father is God. Jesus is not the Father. Jesus is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father. So it's kind of a, an, an interesting tension to work through. But we see the Trinity on display here, which frankly is probably another reason why Jesus decided to be baptized, was so that the Trinity could be seen and observed and publicly on display to the people that were present there and, and watching. So the Father speaks from heaven and says, you are, we're going to dive into this last, this last uh, sentence here, what, Je- what, what the Father says, you are my beloved Son and with you I am well pleased. So on its surface, those are true statements. Jesus is God the Son, he is the Son of the Father, and God the Father is well pleased with Jesus. So we can just wrap and head home, maybe. Um, possibly. Like, that's what we would do if we didn't have uh, more insight. Like, so so part, of, part of what it means to study Scripture well is to read verses like this in light of the entire Bible. And so we're going to dive into these words from the Father for a few minutes and read them in light of some Old Testament passages and themes. And hopefully it's going to unpack, unlock, uh, you know, a, a, rip, a richness or a depth that you might not see kind of at a first reading, at a cursory glance. So I'm hoping that by the end of the sermon, you'll be encouraged uh, to and, and um, have a desire to read your Old Testament in the hopes that reading verses like these are going to mean more after familiarizing yourself with the, the Old Testament. So, you are my beloved son, uh, is a quote from Psalm 2, which itself is kind of tugging on a thread that we see starting way back in Genesis chapter 1, this idea of sonship and, and the, the beloved son of God, the beloved son of the, the father. The first son of God that we see in Scripture is Adam. Right? Adam is created as a special, you know, special creation, particularly made in God's image. Luke chapter 3 refers to Adam as the son of God. So Adam is God's son. Adam is the son of God. And Adam is given a task. He's given a mandate in Genesis 1, 26 through 28. Uh, God says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the, over the fish and over the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God's job that he gives to his son, that he gives to Adam, is to rule over the earth, have dom- rule in my place, on my behalf, be my vice regent, take my glory and spread it, fill the earth with the glory of God, fill the earth with the order of the, the garden, fill the earth with the, the life that I want to be lived in the earth. That's God's task for Adam, God's task for his son. Now, fast forward from there to Exodus chapter 4, we see that Adam was not, Adam was the first son of God, as it were, but he wasn't the last son of God, because Exodus 4, God refers to Israel as his firstborn son, he says, tell Pharaoh to let my son go, let Israel go, so that they may serve me and, and worship me. So Adam was the beloved son of the father, given a mission. Israel was the firstborn son of the father that was also given a mission. And we can see Israel's mission 
in Genesis 12. I mentioned it just a, a minute or two ago. God tells Abraham, go from your country and from your kindred and from your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. That's Israel. And I will, I will bless you and I will make your name great and you will be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, in Israel, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Israel is God's firstborn son and the task, the mission that God gives Israel is to be a blessing in the world. Similar to Adam, right? Fill the earth with the glory of God, right? Fill the earth with the knowledge of God. Make, make knowledge of God kind of uh, abundant all throughout the earth so that everyone is blessed through you. That's God's task for Israel. Adam was given a task as God's son and he failed. Israel was given a task as God's son and they failed. Fast forward to Second Samuel chapter 7, the Davidic covenant. David says, you know, here I am living in this fancy palace. I want to build a, a temple for God. I want to build a house for God. And God says, dude, I never asked you to build me a house. If I wanted one, I would have asked or I would have built it myself. I'm more powerful than you. I don't want you to build me a house, David. In fact, the opposite is true. I am going to build you a house. And God says to David, when your days are fulfilled and when you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of kingdom forever, and I will be to him a father, and he will be to me a son. So in the near term, that's referencing Solomon, David's son who would build the temple for God. But in the long term, that's referencing Jesus, the beloved son of the father, the true Davidic king who is actually going to establish the kingdom and the reign and the righteousness and the justice of God that God has wanted to be ever since the dawning of time. Ever since Adam, God has said, I have this vision for what I want the world to be, right? Living with me under my rule. And I want my sons to establish that. And son after son after son... Adam, Israel, David, all of the kings, son after son after son, has failed to make that uh, a reality. And so God says, I am going to send my son, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, to establish that which all of the other lower, lowercase s sons have failed to do. I'm going to send my capital S son to come and make that happen. Right? When you read the Old Testament, you're left with this discernible, tangible void, this deficit in your soul that's screaming, we need a king, we need God's son, God has sent us a lot of sons, but they have all failed, we need the true, final, ultimate, beloved son of the father to come and rule over God's creation and fill the earth with God's glory so that God's people can be a blessing to all the nations on the earth. If you read the Old Testament, you're looking for that guy. You're looking for that son of the father. And Psalm 2 points us to that arrival of that son. If you read Psalm 2, we're not going to read the entire thing, but uh, it starts with the nations raging against God. Why do the nations rage in, in vain? Human rebellion is at a boiling point, and God is in heaven laughing because this human rebellion doesn't scare him in the least. And then God says, 
I have set my king on Zion. I have set him on my holy mountain. And I have said to him, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. I will make the nations your inheritance. I will make the ends of the earth your possession. Blessed is everyone who takes refuge in the Son. So Psalm 2 is what theologians call uh, eschatological in nature. It it deals with uh, the eschaton. It deals with with the, the last days when God is going to come back and establish his kingdom once and for all. Right? Psalm 2 is a picture of the return of the Messiah on the last day to establish his, the kingdom of God. And God says, that Messiah is going to be my son. I'm going to declare him to be my son. Adam was my son. Israel was my son. David was my son. The kings were my sons. But none of them quite lived up to the sonship, the ideal of sonship that I had. But one day... The Son is going to come and He is going to establish the kingdom that I have wanted the entire time. And when Mark quotes, and Mark is quoting from Psalm 2 when he says, You are my Son. God is quoting Psalm 2, You are my Son. He's saying Jesus is the fulfillment of, He's he's the, the, the second Adam, He's the true Israel, He is the true Davidic King. He is the Son who is going to rule over the people of God. That's not it, right? That's the first half, right? So you are my Son is drawing from Psalm 2, which itself is drawing from Genesis uh, 1 and Genesis 12 and 2 Samuel 7 and everywhere else. But the second half uh, goes, goes even deeper. You are my Son, with you I am well pleased. That is pulling from Isaiah chapter 42. Uh, Isaiah 42 to 53, um, Isaiah has a number of what's called servant songs, which are passages, portions of Isaiah's uh, uh, book that deal with uh, a figure, a person that he calls the servant of the Lord, the servant of Yahweh. And these servant songs uh, take any number of of shapes as you work through them. The one that that God is quoting from here is, is, is the first one, Isaiah 42. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights. I put my spirit on him, I will bring forth, he will bring forth justice to the nations, a bruised reed he will not break, a fainting, burning wick he will not quench, he will faithfully bring forth justice, and he will establish justice in the earth. So the, the, the servant of the Lord that Isaiah is speaking about is the one who is finally going to establish God's kingdom and right every wrong, but he's going to do so in a way that's gentle and kind. Right? He's not going to, uh, a bruised reed he will not break. So he's going to be gentle with his people, and yet he will establish justice and he will uh, bring judgment against his enemies. Uh, as we go on through the rest of the servant songs, in Isaiah 49 he says that, Uh, This servant will gather the people of God back into the presence of God. The servant will be a light to the nations. The servant will bring the salvation of God to the ends of the earth. Isaiah 50, the servant speaks and encourages those who are weary and broken, and he calls them to trust in the name of the Lord. Isaiah 53, probably the one that most of us are most familiar with, the servant is despised and rejected. He's stricken and smitten and afflicted. He's a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He's pierced for the transgressions of his people. He's crushed for their iniquities. 
their sins are laid on him as he intercedes for them. Even though he has done nothing wrong, he is led like a lamb to the slaughter. He's killed, buried in the ground, and then raised from the dead. Right? These are all things that we see about the servant of the Lord between Isaiah 42 and 53. And so when God quotes Isaiah 42, he is alluding to all of that. Right? The first, half, the first clause is God saying, Jesus is my son. All of those themes of sonship are true of Jesus. And then the second clause, God is saying, Jesus is the, the servant of God from the book of Isaiah. Everything that's true of him is true of Jesus. Right? Watch, watch, the, watch the similarities. Right? Psalm 2, you are my son. Isaiah 42, you are my servant in whom I delight. I am going to put my spirit on you. Mark 1, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased, and then the spirit descends and anoints Jesus, rests on him like a, a dove, right? So, so this, this entire passage is pointing back to these themes and these recurring, these threads that run through the Old Testament that are calling us and telling us to wait for the Savior. God is saying everything that you were waiting for from the entire Old Testament is all bound up in and it's all fulfilled in the person of Jesus. You are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Which is why I said it's important to read the Old Testament. Right? Like, we, like apart from reading, studying, familiarizing ourselves with the Old Testament, you would read verse 11 and it would, it would be encouraging. It would be... Right? It's, it's, uh, it's beautiful to consider that God is affirming Jesus in this way, but it means far more set against that, right? Like, I'm not naive. I, I realize that, like, taking 12 weeks to work through a big book of the Old Testament, I realize that you'd probably rather hear a sermon on three verses from the New Testament than 20 chapters from the Old Testament. I would, it's easier for me to prepare a sermon on three verses from the New Testament than 20 chapters from the Old Testament. But there's a reason why we, as the people of God, read the Old Testament, study the Old Testament, familiarize ourselves with the Old. It takes, it's hard, it takes discipline, it takes work, but the better you know it, the deeper and the richer and the more meaningful the New Testament becomes as we, as we read it. St. Augustine, a church father, said that the New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed and the Old Testament is in the New Testament revealed. And so the best way to read books like Mark or Romans or Ephesians or whatever it is, the best way to read those is having first read and studied the Old Testament so that we can kind of let, let one interpret the other. You're my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. But so here's, here's also what's cool, is that, so we have the privilege of Christians today, 21st century, reading Mark 1.11 in view of all 39 books of the Old Testament. And that's true, and we do. We also have the privilege of reading Mark 1.11 in light of the additional revelation the additional clarity that we get from the rest of the new testament so on the outset of jesus's ministry the father says to him you are my beloved son with you i am well pleased right 
So, so that was the case for Jesus then. That was the case for Jesus his entire life, which means that Jesus had every right, unlike anyone else who has ever lived, Jesus had every right to walk into the presence of God and to hear God say publicly before everyone, before the angels, before the entire cosmos, you are my son, I am pleased with you, well done, good and faithful servant, come and enter into the joy of your master. That's who Jesus was, that's what Jesus deserved. That's not what happened, right? This same book ends in Mark, six, Mark 15 and 16. At the culmination of his life, Jesus is not welcomed into the presence of his Father to hear, you are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. In Mark chapter 15, Jesus goes to a cross. He's mocked, he's beaten, he's crucified. He's treated as if he is guilty of every sin that every person would ever commit. Jesus alone is deserving of being welcomed into the Father's presence, and yet Jesus is hanging on a cross, suspended in midair, suffering more than any sinner will ever suffer for all of eternity in hell. And the, re- the reason why Jesus goes to the cross instead of directly into the presence of his Father, despite being deserving of that, is because of a, of a doctrine called double imputation. Jesus is punished. Jesus is treated as if he is guilty of our sin, my sin, your sin. Our sin is imputed to Jesus. It's credited to his account so that Jesus' righteousness could be imputed to you. Jesus is treated as if he was a sinner so that you could be treated as if you have lived the perfect life of Christ. Our sin is imputed to Jesus. Jesus' righteousness is imputed to us. Double imputation. So at the cross, when the sky goes black in the middle of the day, when God's judgment against sin is being poured out on Christ, we are seeing what we deserve. We are seeing how we deserve to be treated. And here, when Jesus is affirmed by God and welcomed, right? When he, is, when he said, you are my son and with you I am fully pleased. We are seeing how we will be treated. The cross that Jesus bore is what we deserve, and yet this affirmation from the Father is what we will receive if we trust in Jesus. The reason why Jesus goes, into the, goes to the cross instead of being affirmed and welcomed by his Father is so that you could be welcomed and affirmed by the Father instead of experiencing the judgment and the wrath of God. Isn't Jesus amazing? There is no one more loving 
There is no one more gracious. There is no one who was so high and lifted up. He was receiving worship from the angels and yet willingly condescended so low to live among us and die in our place. There is no one more loving and forgiving who literally while he was being crucified by the very people that he was dying for prayed to the Father and said, Forgive them, they know not what they do. Jesus is the only one with whom the Father is well pleased. He's the only one who deserves to be welcomed. He's the only one who deserves to be affirmed. And yet, Jesus graciously gives that up so that we can be welcomed. When we celebrate Christmas together and when we celebrate Advent in the weeks leading up to it, we are remembering how amazing and how glorious and how good Jesus is. He is the true hero. He is the beloved son. He is the servant of God. And to him be all the glory forever and ever. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you came into the world to save sinners. We thank you that you are the true and final Son of God, the one with whom the Father was pleased. We thank you that even though you never sinned, that you willingly took on the punishment of our sins so that we, even though we deserve the wrath of God so that we could be saved from it and welcomed into the presence of God. Lord, we wait and we long for and we anticipate the day when Jesus comes back and when we hear, you are my beloved son, I am well pleased with you, come and enter into the joy of your master. Lord, we thank you for the incarnation. We thank you for the gospel. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray.